0: to the Anarchist Book Club, with Danny Evans and me, Jim Yeoman. This month, March 2021, marks 100 years since the Kronstadt uprising and its suppression by the Bolshevik state. To tie in with this anniversary, in this episode we discuss Paul Averich's classic study, Kronstadt 1921, first published by Princeton University Press in 1970. We put several links to further reading on Kronstadt in the notes to this episode, including a free online version of Averich's book. Hope you enjoy this conversation. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Paul Averidge's uh, Kronstadt 1921. Given that it is, you know, almost exactly 100 years since the events of Kronstadt, we thought that that would make uh, for a nice sort of tie-in with the podcast. And we thought that it would be a good place to start with just to give a sort of brief overview of the events of Kronstadt as depicted by Averich. So I'm going to hand over to Danny.
1: Okay, so um, Averich starts out by describing the crisis that the Bolshevik civil war policies has, have brought about, both in rural and uh, urban context in 1921, so beginning of 1921, after the uh, the civil war is has ended to all intents and purposes. There are strikes and and, and unrest in uh, St. Petersburg, which had been like the heart of Bolshevik support in 1917. And there is also ongoing like peasant uh, unrest in in the countryside. And this alliance that the Bolsheviks had hoped to forge and which they thought was the basis of the legitimacy in power of, uh, of an alliance between the working class and the peasantry with the kind of Bolshevik leadership had clearly entered into crisis because both of those mainstays of uh, Bolshevik legitimacy were now, in, in some respects at least anyway, in, in open revolt against Bolshevik power. Then the events start to develop in Kronstadt, which is a, a naval base on an island just off the coast of, of St. Petersburg in the Gulf of Finland. And Kronstadt had been, as Trotsky called it, the flower of the revolution. So the sailors at at Kronstadt in particular had been associated with ultra-revolutionary radicalism in the period between the fall of the Tsar in February 1917 and the Bolshevik Revolution in October. So partisans of um, Soviet power who had demonstrated against uh, the provisional government in, in the July days of 1917 and participated in events like the storming of the winter palace in october 1917 and who then provided lots of bodies in the uh, civil war and the struggle against the the whites kronstadt you know with with justification is seen as being like the backbone of that of soviet power and that tradition so it was an anarchist sailor from kronstadt for example who led the uh, dissolution of the Constituent Assembly, precisely for that reason, right? Because the Constituent Assembly, which was like a, a democratically elected parliamentary body, was a uh, an undermining of, of the power of the Soviets, essentially. In the context of this unrest in St. Petersburg and peasant unrest, resentment in the rural areas at the policies of war communism, particularly um, grain requisition like the forced requisition of peasants harvest had come back to well had spread into into Kronstadt a lot of the the, the sailors were of like a pe- peasant origin or you know they'd moved to the cities themselves you know they still had links in the countryside and that unrest it was impossible in a, in a in a country like Russia which you know, is still largely agricultural for that unrest not to affect uh, city-based workers, but particularly in the context of uh, the end of the civil war, demobilization, and um, the, the spreading of unrest from the countryside into the cities as well, most notably St. Petersburg. But in that context, in Kronstadt, there's a, a revival of Soviet democracy. There's a, an occupation of Anker Square, which is a, a big public square in the in the city of Kronstadt, which had again, you know, been like where people had assembled, debated actions in the glory days of the revolution. That practice, what Averich calls rough and ready direct democracy, is re- revived in the um, early months of 1921. And out of that revival of this rough and ready direct democracy emerges what becomes at least an embryonic insurrection against the Bolshevik power in the name of Soviet power. Many of the the workers and sailors and soldiers at Kronstadt, including members of the Bolshevik party, which is like one of the things that really I think comes out quite strongly in Averich's in book, are willing to take a stand essentially against the Bolshevik government and in favor of what you know in 1917 they called proletarian democracy. So that means Power to the Soviets. No return to um, sort of representative power for the upper classes, for for the landlords, and so on. But free speech among socialists, release of political prisoners on the left, and a, a return to freedom of the press for for socialists, and obviously participation in free Soviet elections as well. So that's the the scene, right? An attempted revival of the promise of, of the October Revolution. To all powers of the Soviets, which immediately presents a problem and a challenge that the Bolshevik regime feels it has to respond to.
0: Yeah, so we have this scene, we have this demand, direct democracy of of a loosening of the of the Bolshevik grip on power in Russia. They basically make this call to the rest of Russia to say, look, you know, look at what we're doing. You too, you know, should take action and and demand this. And I think one thing that really comes out as well in average is that this isn't, you know, they were very clear to not say we want the Bolsheviks out completely, but they said we want a more plural Soviet-style democracy, like not a one-party state, but the Bolsheviks alongside the Mensheviks, the socialist revolutionaries, you know, the, the groups that had been blocked out of power since really... The start of the civil war in 1917-18 and particularly as that then developed and then basically you get the response and you know after a few days of back and forward of threats coming from either side eventually bolshevik power mobilizes and they launch you know quite enormous assaults on this fortress basically this island fortress that at this time of year is surrounded by sea ice so it's the infantry can pass on the ice and you know after an extremely bloody battle the uprising is put down and quite brutally suppressed
1: perhaps we could talk about how we think of like average's account because i have to say because this is like the classic account that anarchists tend to point to i expected a more partisan account than what it is you know he's i think um very even-handed in his treatment really he obviously has a kind of admiration for the, um, the stand that was taken at Kronstadt, and doesn't beat about the bush in explaining how that was consistent with you know the, the ideals of the, of the revolution and so forth. But he's also more, I think, empathetic really than um, I would have expected in terms of explaining how the Bolsheviks saw their own situation. Um, and that was something that found a little bit surprising, to be honest.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that was one of the main takeaways from me, was very early on, average says it is my intention basically to explain why both parties in this, why both the sailors in the insurrection and the Bolshevik state, why they came to the decisions that they did and why and the actions that they did without... I don't think, a, a heavy, coming down heavy-handed moralizing of either position too much. Or I, I think basically he makes both sides fathomable to to the reader. And it's definitely not a hagiography of the kronstadt stalers, you know, who've been duped and, and brutally suppressed, although, you know, he doesn't hold back in describing that suppression. But I could imagine someone more sympathetic to the Bolshevik state Also, reading it and thinking it was fairly even handed as well, which I think is to its credit. As you said, you know, you start, Average starts with the wider crisis of war communism, the end of the the Civil War, which has gone on since 1917, 1918, you know, and really kind of lays out just what an appalling context it was, you know, regardless of the politics. This is a country that's been at war since 1914. You have the revolution and then you have the civil war in which those on the right uh, of Russian politics and lots of international backing waged one of the bloodiest wars going, this, this kind of continuation of the violence that we see all across Europe in the First World War until 1921. When you get all of that, part of you can see why when after all that, after that is wrapped up, you can see why the sailors of Kronstadt might say, right, OK, now is the time to you know to reform this war communism it's not good enough that we've ended up in this situation with with one party in charge of everything but you can also see why this why the bolsheviks might be like oh come on like we've got to this point and now you're doing this i don't believe them but they you could reasonably put them in a position where like we were just about to 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 loosen up you know to ease war communism into what became the new economic policy. And they were terrified of further international forays into Russia, for which Kronstadt would be an excellent starting point. And they were terrified of the ongoing revolts, social unrest, you know, all over Russia, that they feared what the the symbol of the Kronstadt sailors, so so powerful in 1917 in pushing the revolution forward, if they're now saying to the rest of the Russian proletariat and peasantry. Here is the change that we need, not just economic demands, but political demands that need to be addressed. You can see why that struck fear into the Bolsheviks and
1: why they did what they did. We could probably talk a bit more about the Bolshevik motivations here and why a party that had stood for all powers, the Soviets seemingly in 1917, is now brutally suppressing that very demand. Four years later, do you know that this book, Simon Perani's *The Russian Revolution and Retreat*? No, I don't know. He explains like very well the sort of post-civil war attempts of workers, particularly like factory workers, to revive Soviet democracy, uh, factory committees, workplace democracy, things like that, in the aftermath of of the civil war. So that desire to revive soviet democracy was more widespread than just uh, at kronstadt and i think like one of the there are lots of reasons why the the kronstadt revolt was successfully suppressed but i think like one of the reasons was that it was unable to uh, effectively link up with people in mainland russia who were effectively making similar demands and one of the aspects of it that is in the book that's most tragic i think is that at the same time as the Kronstadt revolt is going on, there's the Tenth Party Congress of, of the Bolshevik Party, which is where the new economic policy is decided. And at that conference, there's also this clampdown on on factions, precisely because the, these objections to how Bolshevik rule is manifesting had also was also being made within the Bolshevik Party, including among like quite well known. Members, so you've got Shlapnikov and Kolontai in the workers' opposition and Myasnikov in um, the democratic centralists. But anyway, you've got these like le- factions within the Bolsheviks who are to the left of the leadership and criticizing the leadership from points of view that wouldn't be, um, if, if, if aren't exactly the same as what Kronstadt is saying, are, um, you know, overlap in certain respects. In the context of this like party congress where the are um, You know, the tone is always of being like an embattled revolutionary bridgehead that is holding out against the whole world in order to prove their loyalty to that project, to that dream of socialist power. It's precisely those oppositionists who at the the Tenth Party Congress put themselves forward to say, yeah, we will go and fight the Kronstadt rebels, prove our loyalty to to the Bolsheviks. And several of them died in the attempt. But those who didn't were... um, killing people who were shouting, you know, all power to the Soviets, long live international socialism, you know, people who believe the same things as them effectively. And I think that that sort of tragedy, that tragic element to it, which I think doesn't come across in how anarchists classically talk about it. And I think there are perfectly understandable reasons why people would be reticent about dwelling on that tragedy. But I think that it's impossible to read Averich's account without that, tragic aspect coming through, but like you know that idea of like people arriving, singing the Internationale, you know I was almost uh, in tears. I have to say, like reading that, you know that these these are people who are singing the hymn that comes out of the defeat of the Paris Commune fifty years later, going to drown the the Kronstadt Commune in blood. But how that happened is the key to understanding how humanity missed the boat to kind of free itself, I suppose, a lot of the horrors of the 20th century are there in that moment. I mean, it's a really,
0: really vivid and striking picture you get of the assault over the ice with the armed forces of the Bolshevik state who who truly believe that what they're doing is is right, is that, you know, the Bolsheviks had one power and they had won the civil war you know, through using extreme um, total war measures and mass repression and so on, but they had, and I think that that, yet they had still also, you know, maintained this sense of revolutionary legitimacy with enough people, particularly, you know, military-wise, that, that you do get this image of the left of the Bolsheviks going out. Across the ice to repress the sailors of Kronstadt, and, and as you say, it's a it's a tragic image, one of many sort of tragic moments that we've discussed in this podcast. You know, you mentioned the Paris Commune as well. You know, if anything, even more so because of who's involved and you know where they've come from, and the potential, I guess, that they had there in in 1917. You know, 1917 hangs obviously so heavily on 1921 it does bring up that question of what the Bolsheviks thought they were doing, because it's, it is the Bolshevik slogan from 1917 that the Kronstadt sailors declare. They say, you know, power to the Soviets. Now, they they tweak it at points. They say power to the local Soviets. But it's it's very clearly meant to say, look, we are, we are the, the true bearers of this revolution. As we were in 1917, we are now. It's, it's Bolsheviks who have changed. And I guess it's a kind of enduring debate. You know, particularly amongst anarchist circles, was that always going to happen? Were the Bolsheviks simply cynical manipulators of every position they were in, or had the the the, the, in, the intervening four years simply made that revolution untenable?
1: I was I was thinking about this when I was watching the latest Adam Curtis documentary, which is uh, hard to follow. Like even even for people who are like familiar with this style. But anyway, in the in the last episode, he stock footage of psychiatrists, neuroscientists, and things. who were talking about how fragmented individual selves really are. Even though, like, I think like the ultimate conclusion, if I understood right by that point, because my brain was getting a bit frazzled, is that that isn't really necessarily true or something. It did make me think that. Well, when we think about historical figures, we tend to think about them as like one thing, but it's. It's possible, isn't it, that particularly within in, within an organisation, there can be more than one like set of priorities, more than one way of seeing the world. But even like within individuals, like obviously, like with Lenin being a sort of key exemplar, there can be a different. You know, he he isn't aware of the necessarily of the contradictions in himself that we are when we that we look at him as a historical figure. But our job is, you know, is not our job we don't have a job we're doing this for fun but you know it's it's, um not really here nor there is it like you know like Lenin's personal integrity or sincerity even I think people do get kind of bogged down in that I don't really mind one way or the other you know he ends up objectively suppressing socialist revolutionaries who are fighting for the same thing that he declared he was fighting for in 1917 that's not. It's not possible to do that and retain any kind of uh, revolutionary integrity or whatever. But yeah, like you say, the question is like, is this just a case of duplicity? I don't think Average like really comes down in making a, a judgment on this necessarily, but he does kind of lay out how the the idea of establishing uh, Soviet power as a um, as a first step in a in a world revolution hadn't come to pass and question was could that soviet power still be an objective and a priority in the, in the context of the absence of that global revolution and they obviously decide you know i think a lots of bolsheviks made that decision that it that it couldn't be you know to me that raises the the question of of the ethics of carrying on i suppose in that situation because it's a, it's obviously it's a complete disaster i think like 1914 You know when um, socialists around the world of different stripes fall in line behind their national governments in the First World War, and of course there are other examples. You know, particularly with regard to like imperialism, where where socialists are taking awful positions. But in terms of like socialism as a whole, as a movement that attempts to articulate a project for working class and human emancipation. You know, from 1914 and from 1921, I think there are two key instances where organized socialism from that point on, basically, can't be said to be doing that anymore. That's not the project anymore. They've become projects that are entangled with nation states. And that promise of the Paris Commune, right, the Universal Republic, the global federation of communes that had provided the parameters for an understanding of socialism from that point on. And which I think you know was in the back of the minds of all kinds of different actors from all kinds of different varieties of socialism over the next fifty years is I think definitively quashed at Kronstadt. and continuing to govern in the name of socialism was clearly a disaster from the point of view of socialism continuing to have any kind of meaning. The subsequent history of the twentieth century and even like you know the the, the left how it exists in the twenty first century all testify to what an absolute disaster that was, you know. The persistence of a so-called socialist bridgehead in the capitalist world in the absence of either internationalism or Soviet power, like what purpose does that serve? You know, a, it serves a purpose of like self-preservation for Bolsheviks. But you know, even that doesn't even that doesn't work because, you know, the vast majority of them are murdered by Stalin as that, you know, that project reaches its culmination. And I suppose Bolsheviks in 1917 have, on the one hand, this ambition that they retain from the the commune, which is Soviet power as a, a first leap into the possibility of a socialist world. I think there are lots of Bolsheviks who believe that, you know, regardless of like whether the absolute top brass do. But that, you know, there's another soul of Bolshevism at the same time, which is this social democratic managerial idea, you know, to a great extent inherited from the way like Marx and Engels and people related to to political activity, which is that, you know, history can be sort of managed and guided according to how parties determine that it it should be. And they, you know, that managerial role still persists. You know, they still think that they can manage this society. But what but what are they managing? They're not managing, you know, they're not like managing a transition to socialism anymore. They're actually managing a transition to capitalism, but calling it socialism, which is probably just about the worst thing you can do. If, if you're a socialist, the worst thing you can do is manage a transition to capitalism and call it socialism. I mean, on every level, that is a disastrous thing to get involved with. Maybe it was unavoidable, but the dimensions of the disaster are really hard to understate. I think that that the scale of
0: that disaster, the way that you've mapped out the kind of almost the the hope springs of eighteen seventy one uh, in, in in the Paris Commune, you know, despite it being you know like Kronstadt, a you know a bloody defeat, you know, generally held up as you know it retains its power to inspire. But Kronstadt doesn't have any of that. Kronstadt, as you said, is is like almost like bringing to a close that epoch, that 50 years socialist, you know, internationalism, seemed like a possibility, seemed like it was on the horizon and, and was only given a leg up in 1917, you know, by, you know, as you say, many Bolsheviks believed in it, but so did all sorts of people, you know, when we spoke to Frank Jacobs, you know, about, you know, many, many anarchists, like Emma Goldman, Alexander Berkman, who were there, you know, all over the world, again took inspiration from this moment and so do you think that that's why kronstadt is is has such a resonance in particularly anarchist but also that kind of the non ussr sympathetic left because it's it's finality it's it's the absolute turn of that kind of satin devouring his children sort of idea of you know the bolsheviks turning on and crushing the very sailors who'd brought them to power in the streets of St. Peterburg. That's why it hangs, it retains that, you know, longevity in, in certain strands
1: of the left. That's possibly true, but I think that's possibly on an unconscious level. My My problem with the way it's normally, like, talked about and commemorated, it's not discussed in those terms as, like, world historic defeat for an internationalist socialist project based on the, the direct democracy of the commune or the, or the Soviets, it's seen as, well, we told you that Marxists were bad <laughs> and we were right, you know, like that kind of like really quite facile strain of anarchist historiography, which is always just about vindication, you know, like the anarchists were right whatever, as if, you know, we, we're, we're like looking down from this great anarchist libertarian society where all our hopes and dreams have been proven correct and realized. I mean, I think it would be really good if anarchists in particular but all all varieties of of the left took the defeat of 1921 much much more seriously as a defeat understood it in its like true proportions not in order to then say okay well that's it you know like the possibilities for for uh, emancipation and and life after 1921 don't exist you know obviously that's that's not true but It's a key moment in terms of, first of all, establishing socialism not as a project of emancipation through these insurgent democratic communes, but as a new state ideology. And particularly that that was going to be in the 20th century also a a particularly useful developmentalist ideology for societies that hadn't yet been incorporated into industrial capitalism. Socialism becomes the ideological foil for the transition of those um, countries into industrial capitalist states, however, you know, however that process is actually achieved. So the contributions that have been made to an understanding of what freedom, of what emancipation, of what getting beyond capitalism might be, in the hundred years since Kronstadt haven't really come out of that socialist tradition. I don't know, maybe that's like too much of an overstatement. But things like you know, anti-racist movements, feminist movements movements around like sexuality, countercultural movements, um, musical expression, cultural expression, especially like out, that's come out of the, the Black Atlantic. All those kinds of things are of a, a significance for understanding the possibilities of, of human freedom. But all of, the, all of those things have, you know, of course they have a relationship to, to socialism on one level, but they are all ways in which an understanding of human emancipation has been deepened has been broadened and but that initial project of understanding of what socialism could be through proletarian democracy hasn't like interrelated with with those developments and i mean i think that's an, an issue for like the possibility of any kind of socialistic humanistic project in the future but also i think it's it's partly because socialists instead of like recognizing how important that defeat was in 1921 and then sort of trying to regroup in the wake of that. And obviously like, you know, obviously there are lots of of, of exceptions like minority groups and things who, who have made like all, you know, all kinds of like theoretical contributions. I mean, just obviously I'm not completely slagging, slagging off all socialists since 1921 because that would, you know, it would include us, but it's um, a question also of like getting it, you know, In perspective, you know, like what was possible then or what seemed possible on the cards in that 50 year period, as you say, is then kind of off the table. And rather than trying to understand how that might be reimagined, reprojected, what was actually wrong with that project that helped it be bought off, like helped it be converted into an ideology of nation state. Instead, most socialists have sought to to try and kind of like revive socialism or stand in that tradition. Um, without really coming to terms with its defeat and both the not only external but internal reasons why it was defeated.
0: I think, you know, this is what it's like reading this book, I think, like especially from my own point of view as someone who was familiar with the broad story of Kronstadt, but, you know, I'm not an expert on Russia. My my knowledge of the Russian Revolution probably ends in late 1917. Obviously, I've known about where it goes, broadly speaking but to see it so stark and vivid and you know one thing that really really stuck with me that came out of average's book was kind of tying into what you've just said is the awareness of the bolsheviks had kind of what they were doing even amongst them you know felt you know it felt wrong and that their the need to not to address the demands of kronstadt to say actually no we disagree with you, you know, we, we we think that there we are a le- legitimately pursuing socialism. No, they didn't they didn't address it on those terms, on those kind of world historical terms almost that that we can see in that clash. They slander the the sailors. They say that they are, on the one hand, petty bourgeois anarchists, which is interesting given how Average makes it very clear that very few of them actually are kind of at least self-declared anarchists. Bizarre epithet as well of calling it petty bourgeois absolutely zero evidence for that being a, a sort of class analysis, class-based analysis, and it's just a, a kind of you know, mealy-mouthed slur from from that section of the left. So on the one hand, that's what they are, but also that they are willing or unwilling dupes of the whites and that the, the Kronstadt sailors are, are simply the pawns of this wider game. And that's that's how they base their legitimacy. That's how they base everything that they've done since 1917 is based on defense of the revolution at all costs and so how do you maintain that is you paint these people who are making the same demands as they made in 1917 as now they are the foils for the whites even though the you know white power is basically gone from russian territory at this point there's already Interesting, you know, examples of propaganda that I've come across. You know, that one of which has a, a kind of white guard, always kind of identifiable by their big mustaches. I was told by my uh, friends and uh, colleague, kind of Parker, you can tell in that that Soviet propaganda who they are, pulling the strings of the sailors like puppets. So they just don't know what they're doing. They're kind of infantile dupes. And then an, a, another piece from the same sort of set of a playing card with a with a Kronstadt sailor. On one side, as you would see, you know, like a jack with a double head. And on the other is another one of these mustachioed white guards. And I think it's that in that you see how how easy it is for them to do it, but also how uneasy they are about about what they're doing, because they feel the need to lie just so brazenly. One thing it reminded me of, and I've kind of avoided drawing the parallels with Spain, but just for our listeners as well, you know, we are... In Danny's great book on Spanish Revolution and the Anarchists and there, you know, there is this direct comparison, you know, or draws on these ideas that the May Days, the the kind of culmination of the revolution in Spain was the Spanish Kronstadt. So, you know, if you don't have the book, you know, you should be aware that there is a very affordable and lovely edition out by AK Press. So do go and get that. But also, I mean, even just in the smallest point, it really reminded me, all this propaganda and slander, of that image that's put out, must be in and around the May days, of someone taking the mask off one of the poom and underneath is the fascist. And, you know, it's exactly the same way of operating, to say, no, you can't look on the surface, we know who the enemy is. In 1921, underneath the mask was the White Guard, and then in 1936, two similar groups of people, underneath the mask was was fascism. and And they provide the enemy when really what's on the surface of them of the mask if you want to see it that way is a demand for greater worker power greater proletarian democracy greater human and internationalist emancipation and that's what they're fighting against but they are unprepared to to say that and they have to say that they're this this kind of secretive conspiratorial enemy
1: I've been thinking about this as well like just in terms of where the Bolshevik party is at in 1921 and where it is like at the high point of Stalinism in 1937. I mean, there are a lot of parallels, as you just make clear. Average quotes a leaflet that party delegates send to um, Kronstadt that says, free Soviets would mean a restoration of the bourgeoisie landlords, generals, admirals and noblemen, the princes and other parasites. It strikes me it's possible that it's not just that they're lying to the Kronstadt sailors. They're also lying to themselves. You're obviously not trying to persuade somebody that the means by which you've unseated the power of the landlords and so forth is also going to be the means by which they're going to be restored. That can't be a persuasive argument to the people who have rallied to all power to the Soviets as a slogan. But can it be a a way of like Bolsheviks persuading themselves, possibly because they have this like kind of the party knows best. And mechanical attitude to questions of class, and I do think that by 1937, that's become so caricatured and is, is so far removed from what anyone could be expected to believe. For the most part, it's not. It doesn't have that same tragic quality because in 1937, the people who are you know producing posters that suggest that the PUM, a, a dissident anti-Stalinist Marxist party. I don't think any of those people like designing those but I mean maybe like the you know the, the underlings who were sent out to paste those posters up but you know the, the actual project for presenting that is not self-deception it's just serving broader nefarious interests that have absolutely nothing to do with socialism even in a kind of convoluted you know distorted way but I think at at this point I think this is where like this kind of mechanical Marxism sort of comes in. Like this idea that Kronstadt is a petty bourgeois revolt because of the influence of peasants, right? So peasants who have their own land. So they don't employ other people, but they have like, they have some sort of stake in society as it is. They're not like the true worker who has only um, their labor power. But that, you know, and they're like in the name of the party of the working class that can justify the suppression of those kind of like peasant-oriented demands. The irony of that is, of course, that what's suppressed at Kronstadt is the political demand for proletarian democracy, not the um, demand to end war communism, which had already actually been taken, uh, that decision had already been taken and communicated to the soldiers who were sent out to suppress Kronstadt uprising. I thought that was very interesting because I always the way I've always read it, and perhaps I just haven't read um, sufficiently in-depth books about this period, is that it's after the, you know, the Kronstadt uprising is what prompts the NEP. So the Bolsheviks suppress Kronstadt and then say, OK, but we're going to take your main economic grievances on board. But it wasn't really like that. And in fact, the institution of the NEP was really useful. Like The timing was really important because it it actually boosted morale among the very soldiers who were sent to go and crush the Cronstadt uprising. But that's tangential to uh, the, the point I was trying to make about this kind of mechanical class analysis because, you know, you can see this in Marx as well, right? So we've talked about the Commune a couple of times and, you know, these are letters that Marx and Engels exchanged with one another at the outset of the Franco-Prussian war in which they express the hope that the Prussians give the French a drubbing that will be good because it will help towards the national unification of the, the working class in Prussia and things like this all of which um, you know Marx and Engels thought were justifiable in the name of progress and the, the, the progress towards what they thought would be socialism which they imagined would be brought about by the most the most advanced capitalist workers right so the longer that people were removed from the the origins in the countryside the more generations of of like true working class city-based people there were, the more likely a socialist revolution would be. You know, obviously that's a a sort of like a, a caricature of like Marxist position, which changes over time, which is different in relation to different aspects. You know, his famous letters about Russia are very illustrative in that respect. But I think that, you know, that, Obviously, that definitely exists that aspect of of Marxism, and you can see that right at the out of the the Franco-Prussian War, and you can also see it in uh, Lenin around this time. And Average quotes you know Lenin saying that Russia can't be a socialist country because it's a peasant based country. You know we need to transition over time to a worker based country, and then we can have socialism. But this you know raises the problem that the transition from a peasant to a worker-based society is the, you know, the, the historical accomplishment of capitalism, right? Not of socialism. So this goes back to that disaster, you know, the disaster of socialists taking charge of what is capitalist and capitalization process. But just to get back to this, like, slander of, um, of, of Kronstadt, which was, you know, also applied to anarchists in, um, in Spain as they, they, you know, they're not true working class people. They've still got these. They're still close to the peasant, their peasant origins, or this, you know, this like a mixture of peasants and and workers. You know, it has t- turned out we can say, with the benefit of hindsight, that that is not a deficiency in terms of fighting for socialism. And in fact, you know, the last hundred years have shown pretty clearly that the socialist crisis, the possibility of socialist revolution, has come about precisely through that process of proletarianization, that that uprooting up from the countryside is, you know, it's, it's at that kind of overlapping convergent point when people are being inducted into the shock of of living in the city and working in factories and things that, the you know, the, there's a real, like, possibility, there's a real appetite for socialism, real appetite for ideas of socialistic transformation. There's a, there's a strong kind of utopian current, and all of that can come together, socialist upheavals. That has been proven you know, as a model and as a sort of prediction for how socialist revolt happens, that seems like a much more historically plausible model than this idea that, you know, the more urban inducted into capitalist reality the working class are, the more likely they are to fight for socialism. In fact, it's been the opposite process, right? That 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 national unification of the working class in in a capitalist modern capitalist nation state that Marx thought was historically progressive in 1870 has actually been the means by which the working class have been persuaded of the desirability of a growing economy the worth that it, it being worthwhile to fight for their country and wars you know the, the, the whole ideology of, of nationalism and of national growth that has basically formed the backbone for most socialist projects in the 20th century sadly could also like, lead us into a discussion of the actual character of the Kronstadt Revolt and how Averich paints it. Because I was, I don't know if this uh, was the same with you, I was reminded of um, Hobbesbaum's Primitive Rebels thesis on a couple of occasions. It, it
0: feels like he's drawing on it, you know, it explicitly calls them primitive demands. He talks about them being, tapping into a centuries-old Russian kind of millenarianism. My back tends to get up. Whenever I meet the primitive rebels thesis, I think with more time with it, I have you know I have started to mellow a little bit, and I think that you know perhaps some of my problems are with the language of it. You know, I don't I don't like the tone of it being primitive. I also think it's wrong. You know, in 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 explaining anarchism, um, I'm less familiar with the background of Russia, but I think it's a bit. I still struggle to buy the idea that this is tapping into some kind of inert you know, primitivism amongst the Russian peasantry, it kind of makes it sound like they don't know what they're doing or they don't know what's good for them.
1: I was reminded of it as well. And my main sort of problem with primitive rebels, apart from like just the you know factual inaccuracies, is that, you know, this idea that it, that like anarchism or an anarchic revolt is a, just a hangover from um, the past and that um, socialism implies something new and ordered and what have you. As a sort of model, it ha- I mean, it hasn't played out like that. It doesn't, like, correspond to how things have actually happened. But I do think that part of the, the um, sort of reaction against it has gone too far the other way in terms of, like, insisting on a kind of absolute modernity to any, like, el- element of worker revolt. I mean, I do think that to some extent... Working class people, peasants, you know, in lots of different contexts, rejected the terms of industrial capitalist modernity and were very right to do so. And in doing so, imagined an alternative possible modernity. And I actually think that to some extent, you know, October 1917 is an expression of that. And the Bolsheviks themselves talked about October 1917 as being kind of anarchic. And I've I've read today, like, because because I was thinking about doing this podcast and stuff, and it it, it reminded me of an article I'd read by Lars Lee, who is, I suppose, a very granular historian of the revolutionary period in Russia. But, I mean, he goes into a lot of, like, detail, close, like, readings of texts, and, like, very high degree of familiarity with what, like, Bolsheviks thought and said and things like that. He wrote this article in 2015 for the journal Revolutionary Russia, and it's called Bolshevism Services to the State. And it's dead interesting. And he presents, like, three different Russian thinkers, one who is, like, broadly on the right, one who is, like, sort of, um, you know, soft socialist, I suppose, like soft left, and Bukharin, who is obviously a, a leading Bolshevik. And he explains how they had overlapping perspectives right at the beginning of the 1920s in terms of what Bolshevism had actually achieved. His, his argument is essentially that in the aftermath of the collapse of Tsarism, it was only Bolshevism that was able to restore anything like a kind of legitimate state authority. And even like opponents of Bolshevism had to acknowledge their achievement in restoring that state authority to Russia. The problem with that, obviously, is that socialism, as an ideal, as a project, as as possibility, is not about state authority. So that goes back to like 1921 as a disaster, from I think from a socialistic perspective. But it is interesting, I think, to think about like why it is that something like Bolshevism, which, well, I, I might as well quote that one of the writers. So this is um, Lukianov, who is sort of moderate socialist, very anti-Bolshevik um, in you know 1917. And this is what he wrote, which I think puts it very well. At that time, you know, 1917, who would have entertained the idea that the bitter opponents of war to final victory, those who preached extreme internationalism, people who started with calling for 100% taxation and ended by calling for complete elimination of the bourgeoisie, that these elements, seemingly anti-state and anti-national through and through, could serve as a genuine foundation for a future Russian Vlas, something means something like state authority, That was imbued with the state principle and was thoroughly national so this is somebody who's writing i think like around like early 20s like 1923 maybe concluding that you know the bolshevik achievement is to is to recreate the state after its collapse and making it you know a genuine state in the sense of having like power that it can exercise effectively and being thoroughly national as well which is a complete disaster, right? When you when we think about like, what socialism is attempting, 1871, 1921. But I think it does sort of throw into relief as well what 1917, you know, what October 1917 meant and was about and what those early months of, you know, albeit contested, imperfect Soviet power were about as well. So especially when he, he moves on to talking about Bukharin. Bukharin in 1918 was among the the so-called left communists you who know, came into conflict with Lenin, who were advocating greater worker control against what they identified even then as some as state capitalist. That's where Lenin famously says: hang on, state capitalism would be great. We we haven't got state capitalism, that would be a step forward for us. But so criticizing the Bolsheviks from the left in 1918. But by 1920, Bukharin's advocating militarization of labor, you know, just the same as, uh, as Trotsky. But writing in around that time as well, and obviously, you know, there's an extent of that he's like trying to justify this in hindsight, trying to justify that earlier revolutionary position. But he, he justifies it on the basis that at the beginning of Bolshevik rule, you needed to give the working class more power because you needed to persuade the working class that you were on their side and that you as a potential state or authority could be trusted. And that then when they did trust you, they would tolerate militarization of labor and they would be prepared to go and fight in a, a disciplined army against your enemies and so forth. So in that context, Soviet power is a kind of, even in the Bolshevik conception, is a kind of necessarily chaotic period of interregnum in which the working class are given a taste of of power which is just enough to legitimate the bolsheviks then creating an authoritarian nationalist i suppose this is like just how like people work right when they get involved in a process that ends up being very different to what they had hoped or what they wanted then you know you end up justifying it but it does seem strange that there weren't more people who were alive to what a what a disaster this was right that socialism had been so like perverted by this point that it could be you know a, a state ideology justifying the you know disciplining of the working class and the peasants
0: Sounds quite a lot like the labour parties maybe that's an unfair
1: comparison well, unfair on whom? Good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps we could say a little bit more about Averich. Doesn't, in spite of like talking about the so-called primitive qualities of this revolt, which I think neither of us finds particularly convincing. I think particularly because, like, his arguments about how it's spontaneous and things, and that and that language does chime with the with language that the sailors themselves used. To me, doesn't seem particularly convincing. It's like how how can we talk about the spontaneity of a of a revolt that relies on by that point four year old four year old repertoire of um protest and square occupation that also ties in with what's an institution right soviet power even if it's an institution that's been like damaged by bolshevik rule you know that they're relying on structures that are in place they're relying on a demand that's in place that's widely understood to me that doesn't seem like it's spontaneous or primitive, but some of the other aspects of the Kronstadt revolt that he talks about and which he doesn't make, you know, he doesn't like use as a sort of stick to beat the Kronstadt rebels with, but which he just uh, mentions without exaggeration, I think, or unnecessary exaggeration are, you know, he does mention like some aspects of the, the revolt, which are more troubling, I think, from an anarchist point of view. Particularly the instances of anti-Semitism that he mentions, anti-Semitism, of course, was a, a major problem, like you know pogroms among like uh, white troops and things like this, but was also even a, was also a problem among pro-Bolshevik workers, and also was like in some ways was a way of that some workers articulated their, their politics, right through anti-Semitism at the same time as like claiming fidelity to the Bolsheviks. So even though, you know, we can think like, like Russia has such a, anti-Semitism, was was so widespread in, in Russian society. So like finding examples of anti-Semitism in, in Kronstadt is, is not surprising, but it's not just incidental either. I don't think it's not just something that you can just write off because it, it, it is the way in which so many people, not just at Kronstadt at the time, articulated politics conceptualise their enemy. There are some examples in the book that I found that, you know, are a bit disturbing in that respect and probably, you know, I think should caution against any kind of idealisation of, of the Kronstadt rebels.
0: I thought that was a really strong theme throughout, as you say, you know, from the the kind of the wider protests and crisis, it's there, it's there in Kronstadt, it's there in St. Petersburg, this, you know, identification which, you know, will be fam- familiar to to lots of people as a kind of Nazi conflation of Judaism and communism uh, and Bolshevism in particular, you know, that, that comes out within Russia as well and within the left critics of the Bolsheviks. And, you know, it's no coincidence really that the two people seen as the architects of the repression of Kronstadt are Trotsky and Zinoviev, two people of Jewish origins, whereas Lenin is often... Mentioned, but he's kind of out out of the frame in a way, and we've kind of framed their demands and their grievances, you know, it, you know, in the ways that they they did themselves often, you know, in terms of the the politics of it, the economics of it, and so on. But there is also that that tone, as you say, of ending the conspiracy, you know, against. The, the people. Lo and behold, the figure of the Jew looms large in, you know, at the root of so much conspiracy thinking, you know, it, it doesn't take longer often before the anti-Semitism comes out in those discourses. And yeah, it's, it is a deeply unsavoury thing. And it's not the only one. But I think, you know, as ever, a caution to, to people who want to see Kronstadt, you know, in, in the heroic frame, you know, I think, always a danger with any sort of historical moment but you know particularly so here i mean yes some of the things that they're articulating there are you know can be lauded and you know principled and, and some absolutely
1: not so i remember like arguing with a you know a trotskyist nearly 20 years probably but he he told me that oh you know the kronstadt's called for soviets without jews right which is slander right because there's no documentary evidence, you know, that, that was ever like raised as a slogan or anything like that. I don't know if people still have these kinds of like classic arguments between anarchists and, and Trotskyists who bump into each other on the street. I think they do. I think they happen online. I mean, they, Yeah, they probably ha- at Twitter level, right? I mean, that's a problem as well, isn't it? Because it makes it difficult to have that kind of nuanced response where you can, on the one hand, explain what the Kronstadt, um, what Kronstadt was about and what it's, principal slogans were and what its like primary motivation was while at the same time acknowledging that the problems within that acknowledging antisemitism as a specific issue within that not that you know the suppression of Kronstadt can be seen in any respect I think as a blow against antisemitism you know that would be a complete misreading of the events and also it would be you know remiss not to talk about other areas of the Kronstadt revolt that kind of go against that kind of populist reading of what was going on like you know one part i found like particularly moving was the international women's day declaration that Kronstadt issues and may you soon accomplish your liberation from every form of violence and oppression long live the the free revolutionary working women long live the worldwide social revolution so not only proclaiming like uh, you know feminist goals for for socialism which was all, all too rare but also like restating the internationalism of the, the free Soviet position. There are obviously different currents at work, different emphases that people want to place at different times within Kronstadt and and what and what's going on. So I think like just allowing for that complexity is important basically. But I think, you know, the, the fact that, that, you know, racism was a problem among socialists in this period only really like deepens the tragedy of socialism's defeat and failure in 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 this period of course on the one hand like racism nationalism sexism those are internal problems to socialism that also help explain how it could become embroiled in in statist project that that's something that's under analyzed really in in trying to explain how like socialism became its opposite in the 20th century but at the same time the best possibilities hopes and dreams of socialism in this Revolutionary period, which were anti-racist, which were which were um, feminist, and which were internationalist. They offered a consistent critique of you know racism, nationalism, chauvinism. Allied it to a realizable project of council Soviet commune power. It just hasn't, basically just hasn't existed subsequently. And I think if we were to take socialist organising seriously, would be to think about how what kind of conditions would be necessary to try and reunite those different different elements together so that socialism could be disintegrated from the nation disintegrated from the state and viewed with a newly feministic and anti-racist content as well
0: thanks for listening as ever you can keep in touch with the podcast via our Twitter and Facebook pages, both at ABC Danny and Jim, and contact us via our email, abcwithdannyandjim at gmail.com. The podcast music is Stealing Orchestra, Gente de Minha Terra. The podcast logo is an adapted version of the Left Book Club logo, and the image in this episode is the poster, The Kronstadt Card is Trumped. The image depicts a reactionary white guard as synonymous with the Kronstadt sailor. Thanks to Dr. Hannah Parker for her help in interpreting this image. Our next episode will be published almost exactly one year since we began this podcast. And to mark this occasion, we have a new initiative to announce. So look out for that. Until then, as ever, love and solidarity.